Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Oh, hey, everybody. How are we today? Good. My name's Charlie. If you haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. Come say hi after the service. A couple notes. One, actually, I think Delin mentioned that we have a lead meeting. It's not next week. It's the week after because next week is Memorial Day weekend, also known as when all you people leave me and go to lake houses. All right? No, don't, don't bother inviting me. I have to work. It's okay. Don't feel bad. Um, it's going to be great. So that's on June 5th. If you're new to CBC, she talked about we have lead meetings just to say, hey, this is where God has us, and this is where we're going. It's a little vision casting, a little updating, and a lot of celebrating how God's been good to us. This morning, as we kind of wrap up this series on identity that we've been in, we're going to start the way we always do, which is simply by acknowledging that God is good that we're here because we look outside of ourselves for what goodness is, and that this space, in this place, and what God is doing today is fundamentally different than how our culture asks us to respond to others around us. We live in a critical culture. Today we're going to talk about that a little bit, how our culture begs us to be critical so that we can feel better about ourselves. And so what we do when we come to this space is we know that God is near And we change the question from what's wrong to what is God teaching me this morning? We change the question from where can it get better to how is God forming me this morning is a quote that we like. The move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. It gets our heart in a place where we can hear what God is saying to us through the noise and clutter of a critical culture. And so this morning we begin just by a prayer. I'll pray, I'll ask you to pray if you're comfortable that that we might hear God and that God might use the preparation to show us more of his beauty and his goodness. Pray with me. God, I'm so thankful that we can be here. Life is busy, and it seems to get busier and busier. Life is chaotic, and that's not going anywhere. Life is scary, and it seems to be ramping up. But this place reminds us of what grounds us, reminds us of what true is and what good is, and reminds us that amidst all of the chaos, you are in control. May we Realize and recognize that this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to us and shape us so that we might know more of God and be able to reflect more of God in our Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. If you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a a prayer and ask the Holy Spirit this morning to shape your spirit into the ways of Jesus. And I say, pray for me, that God might use my preparation to show us a bigger, better picture of why he's good and why he's worthy of worship this morning, why we're here. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... So there's a story I've been wanting to tell you people for 14 years, and today I finally get to. You ready for this? You're going to get a glimpse into high school Chuck today, all right? So my senior year in high school, 
I, uh, I was big into sports. I love sports. I also did some musical theater stuff because I love musical theater. And my senior year actually landed the lead role in our production of Oklahoma. That's right, everybody. I was curly, okay? <laughs> it is the only time I've ever worn boots. <laughs> I was curly in Oklahoma. And, and our school was good at basketball, terrible at football, not great at baseball. I love baseball. I played baseball. I was a shortstop. I was a pitcher. And that year... Our baseball team made the playoffs for the first year in forever. Here's the problem. We played in Abilene, and it was the same weekend as the musical. And the musical was a big deal. It took months to prep and plan. It cost a lot of money. And so my choir director said, hey, Charlie, you have to miss the baseball game. And I said, no, right? My baseball coach said, it's his decision. You got to let the kid decide. And so we had this conflict of what do we do? He's the lead in the musical, didn't really have a ton of backups, and he's also, I was supposed to start the game on the pitching mound in baseball. And so do you know what my private school did? They chartered a plane for me. <laughs> That's right, this is what I'm telling you, the story. And <laughs> I've been wanting for 14 years for you people to see me in this part of me. So they chartered a plane for me, and when the baseball game got done, I got on a plane in Abilene, and somebody flew it, and a couple guys came with me that were also in the musical. They were very minor roles. And, <laughs> and we flew, and we landed at Addison Airport, and I had a girl there meet me in a Suburban and did my makeup on the way to my school, and I walked into this theater, and the first song was me singing, and I walked in singing, everybody, right? I, I don't really have a sermon. I just want to tell you that story. Let's go home. <laughs> We've been talking about identity. We've been talking about the lies that the culture tells us that defines us. Like, you are what you own, or you are what others think of you, or last week, you are your worst moments. I tell that story because today we talk about this lie of identity that tells us this. You are your best moment. I want you to look at me and see a pretentious private school kid who's chartered around on planes because of my sheer talent, you know? <laughs> the problem is, we live in a society where more and more it's easier and easier to see the best of what people think they are, and we compare that to our every moment, and that's hard. I didn't tell you that my school was 70 kids, and I was one of like 17 boys. You know, it, it wasn't Argyle or Marcus that we're dealing with here. We create and build this image of our best moments, and in our society and in our world, it creates an imbalance when we start comparing others' best moments to our every moment, because we want those best moments to define us. It's why I rail against Christmas card culture, I need you to see me through my successes and nothing else, all the time, every time. And we live in a world now where it's easier to do than ever. There are literally laws banning this kind of stuff on social media. Norway passed a law about a year ago. The UK passed a law that says you cannot use filters on your social media accounts without acknowledging it or saying it because it leads to an unhealthy view of self when you're comparing your every moment to somebody's seemingly best moment. There's a study from the University of Pittsburgh that found a correlation between time spent scrolling through social media apps and negative body image feedback. Those who spent more time on social media had 2.2 times the risk of reporting eating and body image concerns, and participants who spent the most time on social media had a 2.6 times the risk of seeing themselves not in a healthy way. More and more, we live in a world where we compare everybody's best moments, real or not, to our every moment. And I think that takes a toll on us. So, so today what we're going to do, 
is we're going to talk about this identity piece. We're going to talk about this idea that what drives us is what defines us. So what defines us is what drives us. That if we keep defining ourselves by the best moments that we have, where does that lead us? How does that hurt us? And when we talk about this cultural narrative to define ourselves by our best moments, the question simply comes down to two words we're going to focus on today. Pride and abide. This idea that our our, our propensity to try and define one another by the best thing we've done is a manifestation of pride. And the way that we fight against that unhealthiness is a simple term that John uses called abiding. And this, this, this propensity towards defining each other myself by the best things that I've done isn't just a moment that you and I have because we live in an Instagram culture. It's been with us all the time. I think the, the most blatant place that we see this is in uh, Genesis 11. You can go to Genesis 1 and 2 if you want to, but Genesis 11, if you don't know how the story of Scripture lays out, Genesis 1 through 11 is the universal history of all of us. It tells the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth and Noah. It's the story of all of us. And from Genesis 12 on, it gets really specific. It's no longer the story of universal humanity. It's the story of a single part of humanity that will bless all all of humanity, Abraham, we're going to get into this in the next few weeks in Israel. And the way that the scriptures end, the universal history of the book of Genesis is with the story in the Tower of Babel. You've probably heard it before, right? You have all these people that get together. I'll read a little bit from the text. It says, the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly that a brick instead of a stone and tar instead of mortar, verse four. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. I think not just us now, but us as humanity has always, have always had this desire to define ourselves by our best moments. And if you know this story, it doesn't end well. If you know this story, God says, you're, you're missing the point of my good for you if you're defining yourselves through your best good, your best moment. It's a hard battle. Not just one that we fight here now, one that we always have fought. There's a, a verse in Jeremiah 9. The Lord says, wise people should not boast in the fact that they are wise. What it comes down to fundamentally is if we put our identity in our stuff and our merits and our achievements, we're putting our identity in our pride. You're feeding into it. And the scriptures fight against pride time and time again. And this verse in Jeremiah is talking to a people about how they fight against pride. And the Lord says to his people, wise people should not boast that they are wise. And what this verse, why I love this verse, is they're going to tackle all the different ways that we find those moments that define us because they're our best moments. So maybe you're not an athlete, but if you think you're smarter than everybody else, it says wise people shouldn't boast that they are wise. After grad school, I took a, a brief uh, kind of sabbatical from the full-time ministry thing that I kind of was on the fence of doing and kind of not. I had some church baggage. I wanted to live on the coast. And so I wasn't going to apply to, you know, churches in the middle of the country or in Texas and God has a sense of humor. Ha ha. Um, and I was a long haul trucker for a while, for about a year. And it was funny because I'd, I'd, I'd pull up to these places and I would work into every conversation that I had a master's degree just so they knew who they were dealing with. They would be like, uh, can you back up a little more? I said, well, I just got done with my master, sure. And I'd back the tr truck up, right? 
Because we have this natural desire for people to see us through the best things that we've done because we want them to see how good we are. Wise people shouldn't boast that they're wise. It continues on. And it says that, that powerful people shouldn't boast that they're powerful. So maybe you might not say, hey, I'm the smartest, but you might say, I have a lot of power either physically or maybe in my job or maybe in my title. I am a powerful person. And it seemingly is the truth that the scriptures talk about power is not something that's bad, but the use of power for your good as something that's bad. That's why Jesus often talks about meekness. We define meekness as the disciplined display of power for the good of others. I have to show you I'm good and powerful. <laughs> That's God's job, not mine kind of sort of language. And so he's railing against pride by saying, hey, if you are wise, don't boast in it. If you're rich or powerful, don't boast in it. Last one, if you're rich, you shouldn't boast that you are rich. We live in a culture that seemingly likes to boast in our riches. I was talking to someone this morning about uh, an iPhone that I got, and I, I, I remembered that, you know, I think it was 2008 or 9. I remember when this happened. There was an iPhone app that was just a red dot. Do you guys remember this? There was literally an iPhone app that cost $1,000, and it was just a red dot. Do you know what it did? Nothing. It just showed people that you could, you know? We live in a culture that likes to flaunt our wealth like it means something about ourselves, like it defines our goodness, like it's our value and worth. Because look at me, I can do these things. What the scriptures talk about is, is this moving away from defining us towards our greatest achievements because here's why. Pride is poison. Fundamentally, pride shifts your perspective not around the things of God, but around the things of you. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says it like this. He says, more than other idols, personal successes and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means no one is like you. You are supreme. Pride fundamentally shifts your perspective from God to ourselves. It lies to you and tells you you can achieve outside of other people's influence. And the more pride you have, the more you believe in your own prowess. And that's a problem. Because what we see time and time again in the scriptures is that pride absolutely is before your fall. Let's talk about how it does it with others, and then we'll talk about God in just a second. Pride fundamentally pits us against one another. I love what C.S. Lewis writes. It's a long quote, one of my favorites. C.S. Lewis says, pride is, comp is competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive, only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If every one of us became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud of. It is the comparison that makes you proud the pleasure of being above the rest. When we talk about defining ourselves by our best moment, it usually is at the expense of others. Pride naturally pits us against one another and makes us feel good about ourselves. There's a summer where I lived in Guatemala, and I loved Guatemala for a lot of reasons. The biggest was because I was like the biggest person there. These people are a small people. Uh, and for the first, I have a twin brother who's 6'3". I have a little brother who's 6'3". My dad is 6'4". I mean, I am living in the land of giants every single day thinking, God, why not me? And, and people are saying all the time, Charlie, little things come in big pack, big things come in little packages. <laughs> Can't even say it. <laughs> so I moved to Guatemala and I'm living there and I'm realizing that I'm, I'm a large guy in this culture. And every day I taught at a school. Every day after school, you'd go to the park and you'd play sports. And you had two sports to play. 
You had soccer, which all the men played, and you had basketball, which all the women played. You know which one I chose? Basketball every day. I was head and shoulders above these people. And if I played soccer, I was going to feel terrible every single day. I fed into my pride at the expense of all the women around me. I, I made them look terrible and I felt good about it, you know? Pride, by definition, pits us against one another. It's not to say that we shouldn't be prideful in things we do. It is to say that oftentimes if we're defined by pride, it comes at the expense of others. And it costs us. It costs us our unity and it costs us our community. When you ask questions like, why are we so divided as a people in a country? The baseline of that answer is because we're a prideful people and we need to feel better than others to make us feel good about ourselves. And the Bible says don't do that. So my favorite quotes in the last 10 years is by George W. Bush when he did the funeral of the fallen cops in Dallas about seven or eight years ago. And he said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Pride leads to divisiveness in people. It pits us against one another. It's toxic. It's poison. So when we have this conversation about how we define ourselves by our best moment, at what cost? But it not only pits us against others, it puts us in God's place. And this is kind of the gospel element of pride, and you probably know this to be true, but because it's a perpetual problem, we need to say it perpetually, that pride puts us in God's position. That's why the scriptures say in Proverbs 16, right? Pride goes uh, before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This last week, I had the privilege of teaching a Bible study uh, with a group of men upstairs on Thursday morning, and they're going through uh, Revelation and end time stuff in Daniel 8. And I typically don't enjoy teaching end time stuff because I like you people to think that I'm smart. And when my answer half the time is, I don't know, I don't feel good about myself. So we're teaching through Daniel 8. What stuck out to me the most in that text, and I've read it before, it's been a little while. It's a vision that Daniel gets about the future kingdoms of the world. And so he talks about the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire and soon the Roman Empire. And and he's talking about this one's going to last and then this one's going to come in and then this one's going to come in. And the line that was before the fall of each nation was they became arrogant and acted on it pretty much. That's the Old Testament story too. That when people forget that they need God, (laughs) they usually fall. And what pride does fundamentally, it goes before destruction because if you have prideful eyes, you can't see your need for your savior. So not only does pride pit us against one another, not only does defining ourselves by my best moment come at your expense, it also excludes God from the conversation. That's why in Ephesians, one of the coffee mug verses we have in this Christianity is, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves so that no man should boast. It's a gift from God. This verse that always reminds us that God saved you because God is good. God didn't save you because you deserved it. It's huge. The verse flies in the face of a cultural narrative that says, you know what you are? The best thing you've ever done. It flies in the face of my desire to show people and tell people, look what I've done because this is the kind of person I am. Because over time, what that does is it divides us from one another and it causes us not to see that we need God. So this idea that I am my best moment is fundamentally anti-community and anti-gospel. And so we have to run from it hard because it's so woven into our fabric, whether it was the Tower of Babel or whether it's us now. And so what Jesus, what he talks about Pride, he has this word that he uses called abiding. 
But before we get there, that end of the, the Jeremiah 9 passage, it says, don't do all these things. Don't take pride in all of these different areas, in your riches or in your wisdom or in your power. It continues and it says, but let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. So it's really going to target a culture that tries to take pride in our best moments. It says, but instead of boasting in your best moment, boast about the fact that you have an understanding to know me. That phrase is incredible. It's not just that you know me, it's you have an understanding to know me. There's a difference between knowing something and understanding and knowing something. I use this analogy a lot. Understanding to knowing something is fundamentally deeper than knowing something. I read all the parents' book before I became a parent, and I had no clue what I was doing the moment I became a father. I remember that I had friends with kids, and we'd have parties at our house, or we'd have dinners or something, and friends with kids would oftentimes be late or just not show up at the last minute, and it would infuriate me. We'd make plans a month out and they'd text on the day. I'd be like, hey man, we can't make it. My little kid has X, Y, and Z. Or it's just not a good day for the family. And inside, I would say it can't be that difficult. Just get them in the car. Just throw them in the car and get here on time. You promised. I have kids now. If we're all up and dressed by 9 a.m., that day's a win. No matter what happens next. You know that? There's a difference fundamentally between knowing and understanding. And this text says, if you want to boast in something, boast that you might have understanding to know God, know his character in a relational and real way. Jesus calls it abiding. 11 times in the book of John, we see this language of abiding. 11 times in the book of John, John says, you know what the Christian life is all about? Not rules and not regulations, those are fine and they have their place. But the Christian life is more than just morality. The Christian life is living with and living into the ways and rhythms of Jesus all the time. The scriptures talk about it with this sense of abiding. Literally, the first time we see John talk about Jesus in his first chapter of his gospel, Jesus talks about how he is abiding in the bosom of the Father. It says that I am known because I am constantly in the presence of a God who sent me, whom I'm I'm showing you. In John 15, Jesus says this to his disciples, and, and this is right after they had their last supper together. This is as Jesus is walking to Gethsemane. This is the culmination of their work together, and he takes a moment before he's going to leave them, and he says, guys, do you want to know what this builds to? He says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So he spent three years talking about the ways and rhythms of his kingdom. He says, this is what it looks like, this is what it doesn't. It looks like these actions, not these actions. And as he's culminating his ministry, as he's about to go to the cross, he says to his disciples, you have got to abide in me. He says, abide in me and you can bear fruit. And then if you read that text, it's through verse 11, you see all this language about, man, you can do good things, but if you're not abiding in me, you're missing the point. You can love really well, but if your love doesn't come from an understanding of how I loved you, ultimately over time, it won't make a difference. It won't make a dent and it will cause you incredible frustration. If we live in a church that simply teaches morality, you're gonna last a little while and you're gonna get burned out. The ways of Jesus are richer and deeper than simple morality. He asks us to abide in him. There's a, we talk about what abiding means. My daughter just started swim classes about a month ago. And we go to this place right over here and there's this little pool and and my wife and I sit behind this glass, you know, partition and we watch her right there. And uh, I have never seen this girl so scared in my entire life. 
like the second class, I almost, I almost, I didn't think I was this guy, but I almost like ran in there, pulled her out and said, we're going home. She's terrified, you know? But, but there's a beautiful moment that happened. They do all these little exercises. And between everything that she did, she'd look at my wife and I, and she'd look at us like, is this okay? Is this okay? And we'd be the crazy parents of the guys, you're doing great, good job. And she's like standing in a pool that's knee deep, you know? Everybody gets a trophy in my family. This is the world I live in. But, but it was crazy because she was so scared. But then she'd look back at us and she'd see that we were for her and it was okay and that we loved her and that we weren't going anywhere. And then she'd react and respond. When we talk about abiding, abiding is simply responding from what we've received in Christ. Always. What that means is that anything we do, anything we do, <laughs> is responding out of our identity, our definition, and the love of Jesus in our world. Abiding is the art of responding from what we've received in Christ. And what that does is it causes us not to shift our perspective onto me, but to focus, kill pride, and look at what actually is good and worthy of worship. Jesus goes on in verse 11 in John 15. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in, t- in you, and that your joy may be full. A couple different times in the scriptures, we have this language that your joy may be full. And I think what it means there is what we've been talking about with this idea of abiding is that you can have joy, but there's a depth of joy that comes with understanding where your joy comes from. There's a, a deepening of joy when you understand that it's rightly ordered and from the right place. There's a deepening of happiness and love and goodness when it's rightly ordered around a God who gives these things. It gives more lasting value because what we realize in this moment is that the story we're living into isn't simply the story of my merit or my goodness, but one that God started long before me that will continue long after me that's far better than me. He says, I've spoken to you that you might abide, that my joy may be in you, and it might be full. A couple months ago, um, my wife and I started doing dinners at our house because we didn't have a kitchen for like 2021. And we uh, invited some people over. We're trying to do it every other Friday. I think we've done it like three times. So we're getting there, you know? And there's this book uh, called Every Moment Holy. It's a book of blessings. And, and, and so we sit down and we have a meal. And it, it, it's not fussy. I don't spend days cooking it because Sarah gets really mad when I do that. Um, <laughs> And and before we eat the meal together, we have the guests there read. I'm just going to read a little bit. It says, In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends old and new and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal. And they're the first fruits of that great glad joy that is to come and that will be unending. So let our feast this day be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, in this feast. It's a small reminder that we're not just having a meal together. We as a community are abiding in the goodness of God. And what happens next comes out of what we've already received. What this gets into is not that I made a good meal or that we have great friends. What we see in this text as we focus on this lie of culture that you are your best moment that comes from this overwhelming need for pride in our lives. What we see is that if we want to fight pride in our world, we fight pride when we abide in Jesus. That everything we see and everything we do 
good, bad, or indifferent, is seen through the lens of Christ's goodness, the lens of his love, the lens of his forgiveness. It reorients our perspective around what is truly good. So we live in a world that values highly, our culture values highly independence. You know that? Above most other things, it's like freedom, Whataburger as Texans, and independence. You know, it's right there. I think that's the order. And, and what we have to realize as followers of Jesus is that our version of independence might not be the version of good that the gospel talks about. Because we think the best good is that we do things and we do things alone. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps and then you get to tell everybody, this is what I've done because I've worked really hard. But the scriptures seem to paint this other story that the best good is an independence. It's constant dependence on a God who's good for us. That maturity doesn't look like me being able to say, look what I've done all on my own. Maturity is me saying more and more, I'm not defined by my best moments, but I'm perpetually defined by a God who loves me. It's, it's a move not towards independence, but back towards dependence on a God who's constantly with us. It's against this idea that church, you come to church on Sunday to get filled up for the week. That's not true at all. We carry the spirit with us so that we might abide each and every day in the goodness and the love of Jesus and we might respond to the world because of what we've received from Christ. So as we talk about what it looks like to abide as a people that want to fight the narrative that you're defined by what you've done. In, in that text, it says three things in John 15, 4, 7, and 9. It says, abide in me, abide in my word, and abide in my love. I'd use that as a, as a rough rubric, if you will, for application. How do we abide? I mean, we abide in Jesus. And that just might mean we simply sit in the fact that he is good. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Delenn, uh, a couple years ago, had a practice where she had this picture of smiling Jesus. It's a great little picture. And she just sat there and looked at it every morning because she needed to be reminded of the character of Jesus. Sometimes abiding and fighting our pride simply is looking at the person of Jesus and saying, you are good and you are good for me. We abide in his word and I think it's hard to abide in Jesus if you're not reading about him in the scriptures. So that's why we, can, we call ourselves Crossroads Bible Church. We abide in his words. It means that maybe what you need to do as you abide is open the scriptures and get in. Whether you think you know what you're doing or not, start reading the red ones, the red letters, right? About how good Jesus is to you. And steep yourself in his promises and his goodness and then ultimately abide in his love. Because what we respond to in our world is what we've received through the love of Jesus. Every night when I put my kid to bed, we're doing the bedtime things and we play this game now. And I say, hey, I just got one more question for you, kiddo. She goes, what? And she knows what's coming. And then I say, how much do I love you? And she says, close your eyes. And I say, okay. And then she'll, I'll say, show me with your hands. I say, okay. So I close my eyes. She says, open them. And she always her hands this far apart, right? (laughs) How much do I love you? She says, this much. I'm like, and I yell, no, I do not love you that much, right? And we do this four or 5,000 times. Um, And I'll finally say, that's a lie. How much do I love you? And she'll say, show me. And I'll take her arms and I'll throw them as wide as they can go, right? Say, I love you this much. It's a constant reminder that we sit in the love of Christ that is bigger than you are. It's bigger than all the stuff we've talked about in this series, than your stuff, than your worst moments and what others think of you. We sit in the love of God who passionately pursues his people and you cannot outkick the coverage of God's love for you, period. You know what that does? That's the first step in rightly ordering our identity around the person and work of Jesus. 
Because what this series has done, overall, what this series has done is shown us something. That, that how we define us drives us, but more than that, it's shown us this idea in a world that vies for your identity all the time. Whether it's your job, your political affiliation, your church, your job as a parent, a soccer coach, whatever it is, this world vies to define you. And what we see as we go through the series is definition isn't something that simply happens once. Definition is a discipline. It's something we choose to press into every single day because people are fighting to define you. And as Christians, we have to stand up and say, we are not defined by the other stuff out there. We are defined in the person and work of Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. Because you might be saying, hey, Charlie, I'm not defined by what I have now, but fast forward 10 years and that might be your battle. We learn through all of this that definition is a discipline. And as followers of Jesus, we have the job of disciplining ourselves to see us through Christ. It's hard, but it's good. And it's how we were created to live. One of my second favorite moments of, of, of my best moments came in 2006, January 4th. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's when the Longhorns won the national championship of football. And you're saying, Charlie, I didn't see you on the field. That's right. But let me tell you what happened. Uh, I was in a Colorado town with my family. And um, we were at a bar and, and, and we started <coughs> playing this bar trivia game, you know. And it was my family and some friends and this other table of really loud, obnoxious people. They were USC fans. That's who we played that day. And we started going back and forth. You, you know the trivia games where like you answer quickly and you get more points? And there was a bunch of teams, but ours were kind of at the top, and I think there's 15 or 16 questions. And we're getting to the end, and it's, it's separated by literally points, which is like milliseconds in this thing. And they had a slight edge on us, and this was right before the game, and we're all really nervous and excited, and then question 16 came on the screen. In this bar in the middle of Telluride, Colorado, and I'm a Bible school kid, I'm amongst non-Bible school kids, right? So I just had Diet Coke. And we are sitting there, and a question came on the screen, and it said, it was a question about Bible translations, and the answer was Wycliffe, right? And my twin brother said, yes, and he said some things about how God is sovereign for the first time ever. And, and I answered the question, I got it right, we won that, and because of that, the Texas Longhorns won the national championship. <laughs> I told you, you might not see me on the field, but I'm the reason why, that's what I tell my friends. Why I bring that up is because uh, after the game, Mac Brown, their coach. They won this national championship. It's Mac Brown's first one. It's Texas' first one in a very long time. They beat which was what was known as the best college football team of all time. It was the best college football game I think I've ever seen, bias aside. And, and Mac Brown got his players in the locker room. And one of them, a defensive tackle for him, talked about that moment. And he said, we all get there. The culmination of all this work, Mac Brown's life work, and he said, he got us together, and what he said next, this was an interview 10, 10 years later, stuck with me, and I can't forget it. He said, he looked at us all, and he said, don't let this moment define you. He said, this is not the best moment of your life. He says, you are not defined by this moment, but by so much more as how you live and how you love. And look, dude, that dude didn't go gospel with it. But that's a beautiful depiction of this kid that remembered that moment 10 years later of what we're supposed to do as Christians in a world that tries to define us by things not Jesus. How powerful is it when we stand up and say, you are not defined by fill in your blank. We work towards the discipline of being defined by Jesus each and every day. That'll change lives. That'll have people 10 years from now saying, man, this shifted how I think about my world. Because what defines us, drives us. And we want that to be Jesus. 
So today we end with communion. And not just because it's something good to do, but communion is, is a moment when we're reminded whose we are and who we are. Communion is a moment when we recognize and realize that what we have is because of what Jesus did. Communion is an identity marker of the followers of Jesus, and we do it often because we need reminding of the fact that we are identified, defined by Jesus. And so today, you're going to walk up here. You can sit in your seat and pray for a little while. You can walk up and stand in a little line. You can do you however you need to for this. But what I love about what we do, and we do intention here now, what I love about that is you get to walk up and look somebody in the eye and they can tell you this is Christ's body broken for you. And this is Christ's blood shed for you. And in a world, in a culture where independence is highly valued, I need to be reminded that it's the job of our community to, 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 to press into the discipline of definition. That we together come together every week and say, stop being defined by the things outside. Be defined by what Jesus did for you. That's what communion is. And we get the joy of doing it together as we live in a world that tries to define us, but we know that it can't because Jesus does. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for God who has given our lives definition and value. I'm thankful that we can abide in your goodness, in your love, and in your truth, and in your person, and in your law, and your scriptures. My prayer today is that we all ask questions about what it means to abide. And as we do that, realize that definition is a discipline. One that we get up every day and decide to be defined by Jesus, by his goodness, that we run towards that and people see a difference. People might see the beauty and the goodness of God. So as we take communion, might you understand what Jesus has done for you? And might that be enough? Might that define you might you take joy in that? Because his body was broken and his blood was shed because he loves you. And that's how God sees us. I pray these things in his name. Amen.